All right, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, this is the fifth of nine lessons we have planned in First Thessalonians. Um, sort of we're halfway there through the series, and it's been a couple weeks since uh, we had Easter last week without Sunday school. So I think it's appropriate to do a quick, quick recap of where we left off. So last time Matt Lohe uh, spoke and uh, gave a great exposition of chapter 2, verses 17, through chapter 3, verse 5. Um, Paul writes about longing to come back to Thessalonica after having been sent away under the cover of darkness because of some great persecution. But he's being hindered by Satan, he says, and has been unable to return. Um, he encourages them not to be moved by ongoing afflictions, reminding them that when he was with them, he kept telling them that affliction would come and they should not be surprised that it's here. Finally, he writes about no longer being able to bear being apart from them. And so he sends Timothy to establish and exhort them in their faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted them and their labor would be in vain, in verse 5. Paul could not stand not knowing where the Thessalonians stood in their faith. He knew, he knew they were being persecuted. He knew that he left too soon. He knew they were young in the faith. And so he was concerned. He had to know what was going on. And that's where we pick it up this week in chapter 6 of verse 3. And we'll be going through the end of the chapter, verse 13. So I'm going to read the text, and we'll get started. So verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? As we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So the theme of this text is this. Good news brings good things. So Paul was concerned about the Thessalonians remaining in the faith because, as mentioned, they were being persecuted. They were not being discipled regularly, and they were a young church. But what do we learn right away in this section? Verse 6 says, we learn that in the course of Paul coming, in the course of Paul writing this letter, <clears throat> Timothy returned from his visit to the Thessalonians with a report of this good news. And this is good news. Some would say it's great news that this young church would be standing strong in the faith of the gospel under what we deem to be immense persecution. And so Paul's anxious concern about the Thessalonians' faith was joyously alleviated by Timothy's report. Paul uses the word euangelizo, E-U-A-N-G-E-L-I-Z-O, which means has brought good news. This was a common word often used in non-biblical Greek with the sense of proclaiming welcome news. Mm -hmm. It's essentially the Greek word for our English word evangelize. 
One commentator, G.K. Beale, stresses the significance of the use of this word in this context. And I'm quoting this. It may sound strange to describe the continuing faith of Christians by a term that normally refers to the announcement of the gospel. But the Christian gospel sense of the verb is appropriate here because the gospel has an effect through Christians' lives, not merely when they initially accept it. This effect includes, at least, an increasingly deeper faith and robust Christian lifestyle that has the potential to influence unbelievers favorably on behalf of the gospel. This interpretation is also consistent with Paul's earlier statement that the word of God, which the readers, the Thessalonians, initially received when they first believed, continued to be at work in them. So what does all that mean? It means that the gospel affected lives. And this report of the gospel affecting lives also affected lives. It not only affected Paul's life in the sense that he was greatly encouraged in a time where he needed much encouragement, encouragement in the power of God's grace, and keeping a young, perhaps even immature church strong in the faith despite persecution, but also in the fact that it gives proof to statements made all the way back in chapter 1 of this book, Verse 6, where Paul writes that they became imitators of us and of the Lord. And in chapter 2, verse 13, you accept it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Paul is overjoyed by this report from Timothy. I think he was ecstatic. I think he could hardly contain himself. And he tells us why in the second part of verse 6. The good news of your faith and love, and you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. So three things here, their faith, their love, and their longing to see Paul, just as he longs to see them. So let's discuss each of these briefly. First, their faith. As we hear over and over again that Thessalonian believers were suffering persecution. It's not clear what the nature of the persecution was exactly, but it's reasonable to assume it was probably along the lines of what Paul might have experienced when he was abruptly sent from them. It was a lot for a young church to endure, and yet the report from Timothy was that they were not just enduring, but thriving, holding true to the saving faith of the gospel. And we'll dive into this more as we progress. Second and third, their love and longing to see Paul again, just as he longs to see them. This had to be a huge personal relief for Paul. Remember back in chapter 2 of this letter, when Paul was defending himself from all the false accusations that were being thrown to him. I remember, I was here for that lesson. But just in case you weren't or don't remember, I'm going to mention them again briefly. Paul's three defenses to the Thessalonians how he did not speak in error or impurity or by the way of deceit, but as God entrusted for his pleasure. He did not speak in flattery, motivated by greed, but with gentleness and sacrifice. Number three, he did not burden them, but lived a worthy life before them as an example. So Paul's enemies were accusing him of deceit, flattery, greed, and laziness. It's believed that Paul wrote this letter shortly after Timothy returned from his journey to Thessalonica. So it begs the question, why did Paul give these defenses back at the beginning of chapter 2 if he already knew that the Thessalonians held nothing against him? It's probably for several reasons. 
First, he may have wanted to have a record of a written defense to his accusers and his supporters who were exposed to this slander. Second, there may still have been doubters among the flock who needed to hear his defense from him, directly from him. Third, to let the Thessalonians know of his concerns in this manner and to amplify the faithfulness of God in their lives so as to show that this concern that perhaps gave Paul so much anxiety was really unfounded, erased by the providence and faithfulness of God's grace in the lives of the Thessalonians. Again, what a joyful feeling this must have been for Paul. So moving on to verse 7 through 9. In these next three verses, Paul gets more specific about how Timothy's good news report is affecting him and the other missionaries that are with him. There are three ways that they were affected by this good news. They were comforted, number one. They were renewed, number two. And number three is they were thankful. So comforted, renewed, and thankful. So let's expand on each one of these. In verse seven, Paul writes, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. So Paul is in distress and affliction, and he's being comforted by the report of the Thessalonians remaining faithful, since they too are in distress and affliction. We just talked about this. That's why Paul was so concerned about them remaining in the faith. This is a common theme throughout Paul's epistles, comfort through faith and affliction. The most prominent example of this can be found in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. In verse 7, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you'll also share in our comfort. Isn't that great? It's almost, dare I say, a cumbersome usage of words. Um, it might be just the way it's translated, but to me it came across as kind of cumbersome. The word comfort is used ten times in only five verses. It's used four times in just one verse, if you caught that. It appears to be several circular arguments tied in a double knot. But if we break it down a little, it's really pretty simple. Here's what Paul is saying. God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the God of all comfort. He comforts us so that we can comfort others with the same comfort that God uses to comfort us. As we share in Christ's sufferings, so we share through Christ comfort as well. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort. As you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. This is Paul talking to the Corinthians. And later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, Paul gives us another glimpse of this same theme and hones in on the work of Jesus and his people. This is a well-known passage. Verse 7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, 
perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to the death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul is talking about himself here, but the encouragement for Paul makes these same words applicable to the Thessalonians as well. The good report of them enduring weakness, hardship, persecution, and accepting them as God's gracious therapy The power of Christ is being perfected in their lives. And since it is Christ's power that brings life to the church, not the Thessalonians, Paul could just as easily have written, so death is at work in you, but life in us. Mm. It's the same circular argument from chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians I read earlier. And it's not unlike hearing reports of those who we know who are experiencing affliction right now and yet persevering in the faith. I think of Bernice's brother who endured extensive seven-hour surgery and was praising God the next day. We all got the email about that. I think of Sharon Scott's continued struggle with her heart, something she's been suffering with for at least a year, maybe longer, and yet she endures. She's always smiling, and she's still ministering to others in her affliction. And there's many more examples. We could spend the next hour talking about this in this church body. But those lives, those examples are comforting to us. So as we live through our struggles, we are reminded of these faithful examples, and God uses them to strengthen our faith as well. So the second way that Paul and the other missionaries were affected by the good news regarding the Thessalonians enduring in their faith. Number two is they are renewed. They were renewed. And we see this in verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. I'm reading from the ESV translation, but here are what some other translations read. For now we really live. For now we are alive again. Our life is really full. Your strong faith in the Lord is like a breath of new life. And a logical follow-up from the comfort that they realize in chapter 7 would be a renewal of their lives particularly in their faith. And for this topic, I have to go back to 2 Corinthians again, this time chapter 4, verse 16, for a clear, concise breakdown of how Paul views his life in service for the ministry of spreading the gospel. Verse 16 of of, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This verse on its own could easily sum up the experience that probably most people in the world want to have if they're truly being honest with themselves. It is an amazing claim, the experience of not losing heart, that even though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Did anyone come here this morning hoping that you would hear something that would make you totally lose heart? Did anyone get up this morning desiring to be discouraged? Is anyone looking to lose all hope? Is there anyone that would just love it if all their motivation was just stripped away? Of course not. We don't do anything that way. We come to church for the opposite of all those things. 
In other areas of life, we hope we don't come across those things. We want to be renewed. We want to be encouraged. We want hope. We want motivation, our motivation to be increased, not stripped away. So it's reasonable that Paul is referring to this renewal of his inner self in his later writings to the Corinthians. To be renewed means that something first need to have run out. The gas tank is dry, the bucket is empty, the battery's lost all its charge. Jesus says in Matthew 6:34, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I know we've all heard this before. It's difficult to remember and it's difficult to live. Each day has its own pain, its own persecution, its own dying. Our heart, our soul, our mind always needs recharging every day. And this letter from Timothy of the news that the persecuted, afflicted, immature church in Thessalonica was still persevering in the faith, that was the fuel that Paul needed that day. Nothing was more encouraging than hearing of their continued faith. And it may be what God used to inspire Paul to write this letter in the first place. The third way that Paul and the missionaries were affected by the good news is that they were thankful. We see this in verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for our sake before our God? There's no doubt that Paul was thankful for this good news. He alludes to it previously in the letter. He was full of joy and praise and thanksgiving. And this is a right and just response. When we are most cheerful, we should also be most thankful. We should give thanks for what we rejoice in. We should spiritualize our joy. The words that Paul uses here are almost as if he didn't really know how to express his thankfulness to God, or his joy, or his rejoicing for the sake of the Thessalonians. But he was careful that God should not lose the glory of the comfort that he and the others received in the welfare of his friends, the Thessalonians. Also, this thankfulness that Paul is expressing here is really a response to Paul's questions in chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. And that reads, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So Paul is really just repeating a theme from earlier in the letter. That is, that his life is intertwined with their lives. His joy is their joy. His afflictions are their afflictions, and vice versa. And they are all strengthened by Christ. And we see this connection of sharing the joy of being one in Christ in other New Testament passages as well. I'm going to read a few examples, or give you a few examples, not read them. Uh, Romans 1, chapter 12, verse 12. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, the first part of this chapter gives several examples and analogies of this. Ephesians chapter 4, Acts 12. Hebrews 10, Jude verse 20, and 3 John verse 4, which references the parent-child relationship. It reads, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the faith. Is there anything greater we could be thankful for than to be walking in faith with Christ, or to know that others are walking in faith with Christ? Good news creates good things. Comfort, renewal, and thankfulness. 
But notice the end of the sentence, starting in verse 9 and ending in verse 10, is not only a question, but it's also Paul describing what he's been doing and hopes to do for the Thessalonians. He says, we pray most earnestly night and day. So he's not praying in passing. He's not praying when he's got some free time or when he just happens to remember. No, he's praying earnestly, sincerely, intensely, with conviction. And how often is he doing it? Night and day. It's true, and when we are most thankful, we should also give ourselves to prayer. And those who we are most thankful for, and those we most rejoice in, and those who give us our greatest comforts, those people, whoever they might be, God has put them in our lives so that we pray for them. That's not to say we don't pray for others, and there's more to come there, but there's a reason why God brings people together. Like Paul and the missionaries and the Thessalonians, and like all of us here in this church, so we might lift one another up in prayer. If not us, then who? And what is one of the things that Paul says he prays for earnestly and regularly? That we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So even though the good news of the Thessalonians' faith was such that it brought comfort, renewal, and thankfulness to Paul, it wasn't perfection. So it's not really surprising that there's still something lacking. And let's be honest, as long as we're still on this earth, our best days as Christians will still be lacking. They will lack a lot of things, in fact. This is not a profound statement, I know, and it probably wasn't profound to the Thessalonians either. There's a reason why we need to be constantly reminded of what it means to live in the faith. Why we need to be reading our Bibles every day. Why we need to be praying earnestly and regularly every day. Why we need to be attending church regularly. We need to be reminded of God's promises to his people. We need to be reminded of Jesus' work on the cross and what that means for our souls and what that means for humanity. The idea that we have to constantly be reminding ourselves of these things should bring a huge dose of humbleness to our souls. And if that doesn't make you long for Christ's grace and mercy in your life, I don't know what will. <clears throat> our minds, our bodies, our hearts, they are oh so, so weak. We need to be reminded of these truths. So the conclusion from this section, remember the theme, good news brings good things. The good news of the Thessalonians' perseverance in the faith brings comfort, renewed life, and thankfulness to Paul. These were all good things, valuable things that he needed at this time. We know that Paul, at the writing of this letter, was at the early part of his ministry. So this good news, the comfort, renewal, and thankfulness that was created would help Paul pers persevere in the faith. <clears throat> And Paul wished to keep doing the same for the Thessalonians as well. Note that verse 9 and 10 is a question, but it's not a rhetorical question. It has an answer. And Paul prays the answer in the next three verses, verses 11 through 13. He prays for three particular items, that God would bring he and the Thessalonians together again, that God would make them increase in their love, and the third, that God would make them increase in their holiness. This prayer is made to God, the Father, and our Lord Jesus. 
Jesus Christ our Lord is God, even as God our Father is God. Prayer is not only to be offered in the name of Christ, but offered up to Christ himself as our Lord and our Savior. So what does Paul pray for? First, Paul prays that they might have a prosperous journey to the Thessalonians by God's will. This is something that would, to some, seem more dependent on the will of man, not something necessarily worth praying for, but Paul saw this differently. He had already been prohibited, as we know, from being able to see them again up to this point. And he realizes that we live, we move, and we depend on God in everything, even our travel from one place to another. Paul knew that there were no guarantees that he would ever be able to see the Thessalonians again, even if he had the will and wanted to do so, which he did. And so he prays for it to happen, placing it in the will of our sovereign God, who has all the charge over his affairs, even the continuance of his life and being, directing where he will go and what he will do. And so may we acknowledge God in all our ways. Let him, God, direct our paths as well. Second, Paul prays for the prosperity of their souls, particularly that they might increase and abound in love, in love to one another and in love to all men. What does this look like? Well, mutual love between Christians is required. We all know this. No one would disagree with that. It goes without saying. And so we often treat this love as a target we should be aiming for. But Paul takes it a step further. Having a charitable disposition and due concern for not just our fellow Christians, but the welfare of all men. To us at times, knowingly or unknowingly, that's a stretch target. But Paul doesn't see it that way because Christ doesn't see it that way. And perhaps this may be what was lacking in the lives of the Thessalonians. Love is from God. It is the fulfillment of the gospel as well as the law. Therefore, we have a reason to desire to grow in every grace and have need of the Spirit's influence in order to grow in every grace. And the way to obtain this is by prayer. We are beholden to God not only for what he has already provided to us, but also for the increase this must be the endeavor of the Thessalonians. And Paul again mentions his abounding love towards the Thessalonians. Isn't it true that the more we are loved, the more loving we are to others? And this was all Paul could do for them without being there with them, ministering to them in person, praying for abounding love for them, and reminding them of his abounding love for them. And what is the effect of this abounding love? We see this in verse 13. So that he, God, may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is the spiritual benefit of increasing and abounding love. The more we grow and abound in grace, specifically the grace of love, the more we are established and confirmed in it. Paul is, of course, referring to the second coming of Christ. And he is pointing the Thessalonians to where they want to be on that day, with hearts blameless and holiness before God. But they can't get there on their own. Only the Lord Jesus can get them there with his perfect grace. Only then can they then be presented as holy and blameless before the throne of his glory. Mm -hmm. And they won't be alone. 
Paul tells us this at the end. Paul will be there too, and all the saints who came before them. And this is a good thing. Friends, will the good news bring this good thing to your life? It's my hope and prayer that it will.